0: Christianity offers a meaning in life that suffering can't take away from you, a satisfaction that's not based on circumstances, that's therefore kind of abiding, a freedom that doesn't undermine love, an identity that's absolutely stable and uh, gracious and empowering, a, uh, a hope that can face anything. Dr. Tim Keller is with us again today on Focus on the Family. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller.
1: We're taping in New York again today, so there's going to be some background noise probably. We have an elevator nearby, so you may hear that. But, uh, you know, in the Bible, in 1 John 520, it says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. That's a powerful statement, and that's what we're discussing Uh, yesterday and today. Yeah, the matters of uh, why you
0: should believe, and uh, Dr. Keller's book is called Making Sense of God. Those are uh, the frameworks for uh, the conversation continuing today. And Dr. Keller is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church here in New York City. He's written a number of books, and uh, this newest one, as I said, is called
1: Making Sense of God. Dr. Keller, welcome back to the program. I'm glad to be here again. discussion last time was so good. And uh, we touched on the parenting aspect of that. But I think a lot of the listeners, this is where we're all living. I mean, John has six kids and some at home and some on their way. And Mm -hmm. I've got the two teenage boys. And we represent a lot of the folks listening. So when you're looking at parenting and you're talking about how you yearn in your heart to make sure your kids have an abiding faith that when you're older, they're walking with the Lord. And yet you see – Research, like from Barna, talking about 70% of young adults, 20-, 20, 21-year-olds, who walk away from their childhood faith. A, what is happening in that dynamic with that young person? What, why are they walking away? And then B, many do come back over the next couple of decades. Yeah. Um, so is that a time as, for a parent to... Um, You know, ask God why, what's happening, why has my son or daughter walked away? Talk about all those dynamics.
0: Well, I mean, uh, I'll just start with one. You might want to go back to others because that was a kind of a compound question. It was, it was. I (laughs) have a habit of doing this. What I usually try to say to to be at some comfort is, (laughs) I I think this is true, I I usually say to parents, have you not realized, do do you not see, most of them are older, obviously, uh, how much you, you have been affected by your parents. Uh, as you get older, you're constantly saying, boy, that's the way my father was. That's the way my mother was.
1: Isn't that a good parenting and, tip to say to your wife, that's just like your mom.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, but, you know, it, it's inevitable that you start to see that I really was pretty affected by my parents. Uh, there's a, there, there's a, a kind of hubris that when you're young, you say somehow, you know, well, I'm not going to be like my parents. I'm going to be very, very different. As time mm-hmm. goes on, there really was a lot of influence. And I actually have seen over the years a fair number of people come back to faith. I wouldn't even say they, I I don't know whether they got converted or they just relapsed and came back to their faith. It's hard to know and they don't know either. But I do see them coming back because if the family was a fairly functional family and the parents were loving and they had faith, it, it does, it definitely stays with the young adult as the years go by. It's a live option for them. In a way that it might not be for somebody else. So I actually do see a fair number of people gravitate back or sort of come on back. Well, it's almost where the scripture says, you
1: know, train your child in this way, and when he is old, he
0: won't depart from it. It does have an impact. It does. Yeah, as long, like I said, but maybe the first part of the question is, I think I do think a lot of times kids leave for social reasons. That is either they. Um, the relationship with the parents wasn't good and i do think there's plenty of studies that say having a good relationship with your kid is more important for them embracing the faith than all the programs uh so if they respect you and that's not easy because kids need to find fault with their parents i think growing up it seems like there's a need there they want to criticize but if they actually respect you and see the role that uh faith plays in your life they don't see a lot of hypocrisy and they're going to find it if there's any hypocrisy in your life inconsistency (laughs) teenagers are going to find it yes they're going to even create it sometimes but if it's sometimes they they see it when it's not there Mm. but actually if it's there they're going to find it and if you're able essentially to be a person of integrity then uh, and and have a good relationship with them then it goes a long way toward them embracing it the reason they walk very often is another set of friends that they really want to be part of and they're they're skeptical of faith,
1: and they're finding identity, and in they're that finding group.
0: identity in that group. So, an awful lot of it is uh, yeah. looking back. People say, "Well, I, I I got convinced out of the faith," but usually there's a lot of social reasons.
1: Let me ask you this, and you can put it in the um, every group, not just children or adult children, but what is deep within us that yearning uh, to discover the meaning of life? Is that a God thing? Do you think that is put in our spiritual DNA?
0: Yes. I mean, obviously, as a Christian, I, that's how I see it. I, I But there's just plenty of non-believers who also would say no one can live without meaning. I mean, there's just tons of books out there saying you've got to have meaning in life. You know, Viktor Frankl, uh, the, um, uh, who was in the death camps during um, World War II and survived. He was Jewish and he was put in the death camps. He wrote a very famous book called Man's Search for Meaning, which essentially said this, that he was looking at the people who actually survived the death camps. I don't mean physically survived them, but the people who didn't uh, just curl up and die just out of hopelessness or go evil. I mean, he said he saw a lot of people in death camps just basically do what they could in order to survive. Right. But he says the ones that seemed to get through it with integrity were people whose meaning in life couldn't be taken away from them. Uh, if your meaning in life was making a lot of money and then you get into the death camp, you're just like everybody else. In fact, if your meaning in life is, mo- most things that we put our meaning in are things in this world. Right. Material things. Right. And so the death camp just takes that away. Right. And the few people, he admitted, the few people who were able to keep moving had either some kind of religious or quasi-religious. Uh, meaning in life, like one man, I'm, I'm not sure this is particularly the right Christian answer. One man death camp said, I, "My wife, who's dead, is looking down on me from heaven, and I don't want to disappoint her." Now, you know, Christians would say, "Well, that's really probably not sufficient meaning in life," not from a Christian point of view, and yet, it was um, a relig- it was something that the death camp couldn't take away from him. Right. And and so basically, I think what I learned from Viktor Frankl was that secular. Uh, The secular worldview forces you to find your meaning in life in in material things, things in this life. But then suffering takes those away and you are just absolutely destroyed. So one of the great advantages of faith in general and Christianity in particular is it gives you a meaning in life that suffering actually enhances because Mm -hmm. it can drive you more into God's love. It pushes you more into God's love.
1: Well, in that spirit of honesty let me not wanting to step on toes, but ask each one of us, listeners, you're included uh, this question and that is um, you know what if I don't have meaning or happiness and I'm claiming to be a Christian? What's the disconnect? So I haven't I, I'm full of mm-hmm. angst. I'm mm-hmm. not at peace, but I do go to church on mm-hmm. Sunday, but Monday through Saturday is kind of ugly.
0: Yeah, that'll preach. Um, that is toe-stopping.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is. Well, what it means – But it, it should be challenging because we should be improving. That's what the Lord wrote and yeah.
0: said. That's what Paul wrote and said. Well, I think what you're getting at is it's one thing to say my meaning in life is God. It's another thing to actually have Ex- existentially, functionally, your heart really finds its meaning in God. I actually think that most Christians – in fact, all Christians have some disconnect. If we perfectly found our meaning completely in God and God's grace, we'd probably, I think, be perfect –
1: People. So, so one be at peace with the fact that you won't be perfect, right? <laughs> and two, how do you become better if you're feeling you're in that hole that you know what? I don't feel the peace of God. I don't feel right. joy. I'm not joyful.
0: Well, I can, as a pastor, I can tell you how it usually happens. How people actually do grow in their resting in Christ more. It usually happens through suffering. So generally, what happens is for Christians. Uh, we say God is our meaning in life, but other things are our meaning in life. When when something comes along in life that hurts us, it drives us more into God, and we actually grow more and more in more stable because He becomes our real still point in the turning world. So it's a painful path, but that's the way almost all of us grow in, more into God. Then why do we rebuke
1: suffering in the Christian community the way that we do? We run from it. Is that a Western? Uh, thing for us is it a, an American thing? Yes,
0: I think so. There is there. By the way, there is you, there. You can fall off the horse on the other side. There is a um, almost an embrace of suffering because it makes me feel noble because I'm suffering. Correct. But uh, that's generally not the American. That's not the American side of the horse in Western we civilization. That's no, not what we, we actually do. do find suffering to be um, in our society. We find suffering to be. We're way more traumatized. Um, what we avoid yeah yeah and most doctors i know and i have known a couple doctors who have worked both in india or china or something like that and and in the west say that uh the westerners are far far more traumatized by you know the same kind of suffering though people just be absolutely traumatized by it other parts of the world they take it much more in stride so we really are so it's um, one of our weaknesses it is definitely a weakness but it's partly because the secularism makes us Uh, functionally put more of our meaning in life into material things.
1: So we've talked about the joyless Christian. Let's talk about the happy unbeliever. (laughs) Because I know people that have done well in their life. They don't know the Lord. They tend to operate in biblical principle. That's what I find very interesting that They apply biblical principles without even knowing necessarily that they are.
0: Well, you mean they're savvy enough to realize a lot of those principles are uh, just—they're just wise. Right. Uh, uh, There's been a lot of discussion about the fact that more well-educated people actually are more likely to marry and stay married. Right. And even though they their values are not—they don't have—they don't have—they're very relativistic in their moral values. But they actually have found out that marriage does work and, if and staying together works, and so the divorce rate is lower amongst more you know, highly educated, more highly educated yep. people, even though they're more relativistic. So that's exactly what you mean. And that is, they've realized that these, they don't think of it as biblical principles, they just realize these work well. Right.
1: So. And, and also, the, the fact that um, it's probably one of the more common things we say it's so hard to witness to talk about Christ. To someone who has a good life and they're good people. Yes, they have good character.
0: Then what I suggest is that you just stay in a good relationship with them and wait for an opportunity. Because honestly, it isn't uh, the default mode of the human heart is to take complete credit for anything going well in your life. In other words, when, when bad things happen, why did God allow that, allow that to happen? When good things happen, well, that's because I planned well, <laughs> I worked hard. He gets no credit. He gets no credit. <laughs> I mean, and that's just – that's part of the sinful human heart. That is, we screen out anything that God has done for us and we take credit for it. Um, and that means that it's very, very difficult. It, by the way, you do know the Bible says one of the worst things God can do is give you what you want. I mean, there's, I mean, well, Romans one actually <clears throat> says that the, the greatest judgment is to give people what they want, and and if people actually get the life they're looking for, it's there's no better way to uh, become hard and and proud and self righteous and and um, and and out of touch with the reality that you need God.
1: Yeah, and and really in the simplicity of it, you're describing marriage and parenting. I mean, God yeah. is not that. Uh, complex when it comes to those relationships. Marriage is about learning to be selfless. Parenting is about humility. I mean, in everything around us, he's trying to teach us lessons about his character, isn't he?
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Tim, let, let me ask you this. The um, kind of mantra in the culture is, uh, why can't I be free to live the way I want to live? That's especially true in the U.S. Uh, don't tread on me is one of our state mottos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be this deeply ingrained idea that the the worst offense is to tell me about your morality. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll debate science, but mm-hmm. if you want to tell me about spiritual things, mm-hmm. that's intolerant of you. Right? H- how, do, how do you manage that environment? How do you get someone off the ledge where you can't even talk to them? to where you're down hopefully in the square where we can have a discussion about spiritual
0: things. Oh, boy, I don't, everybody's different. So when I'm actually in the moment, it, it always goes in a different way. If somebody says, it's wrong for you to be telling me how to live my life, one, one of the first responses you could do would be to say, that's interesting, you used the word wrong, and you're calling me wrong right now. <laughs> uh, on what, what, uh, so you're telling me that I ought not to be live, doing something, and I should be doing things the way you think I should be doing. Would you tell me, how do you decide right and wrong? Because you're using a standard of right and wrong. You're using it on me right now. And uh, they will usually be a little bit perplexed at that mm-hmm. because that what they're, they they thought they were saying to you, you shouldn't be using standards of right and wrong on people, except – they're using one. It's called expressive individualism. They, it, they, it's an approach to life and it's an approach to society that they have adopted. It's not self-evident to all people that it's right. Mm-hmm. It's not empirically provable, and therefore it's a moral value. And the one of the biggest problems that secular people have is they have a lot of strong moral values and they've got no basis for them. And they, mm-hmm. <clears throat> when I say they have no basis for them, I don't mean they may not have strong feelings inside. You know. But they have no basis for telling anybody else why they should be living this or that way. Generally, when we, uh, in the past, you always had some moral source outside the self that you could appeal to. Mm -hmm. And you could say, you ought not to do that because that's the way Americans are, or that's what the Bible says, or something like that. But today, since we say, no, everybody decides whether it's right or wrong for them, and no one has the right to tell anybody else, you know, how to live, the question is, you're doing right now the thing you just said, I'm not allowed to do. And you have a moral um, vision, which uh, if you're going to push this on me, you need to give me some reason. As a Christian, I can say, I believe there's a God. I believe he's spoken in the Bible. And even whether you admit it or not, I think there really are moral norms in the universe. And I'm, that's the reason why I feel, I, that's why I believe in human rights, that's why I believe that uh, I should be kind to my neighbor and that sort of thing. You, however, um, so I have a basis for actually appealing to you. Right. But you actually don't have anything outside. And yet you're you're making all kinds of moral judgments. Why? How? So that's the direction I go. Now, that's a bit adversarial. Again, yeah. I think try to say all along, you need to know people before well, you, you have these conversations. And in the
1: moment, and I get that, you don't apply the same, you, same no, approach right. every time. I, I hear that clearly. Um we touched on suffering last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we ended there. Um, how is Christianity the only religion that makes sense out of suffering?
0: Well, now actually, um, I wouldn't go that far. Okay. I would. I would say, I, I'm going to. I'm going to make a case where I think Christianity makes the most sense of suffering. Okay, that's a fair but, way to say. I it. mean, by the way, let me give you. Here's Hinduism and karma. Uh, you realize. Sometimes I've actually almost envied their answer, but it's too neat. Basically, any suffering that's happening to you, you deserve. From the previous from, life. From, from previous life. <laughs> so there's, you never have cause for, for griping. Never, ever, ever. And so your suffering always makes sense in terms of previous life, and now if you want to have a better life, the next reincarnation, the next incarnation, you ought to just, you know, you know take it. And I, was th- I always said, boy, that's so neat. Now, I actually do think that that's in some ways heartless. Because it's really saying to anybody who's suffering, you know, suck it up and stop your blubbering because you deserved it. I mean, yeah, you did something in your previously. Rationally, it's a complete, it's it's a perfect answer. You know, rationally, it's just I think unsatisfying. No, Christianity is the only religion that says God suffered. That the God who loves you loves you so much that He was able to come into this world, was willing to come into this world and suffer himself so that someday he could end all evil and suffering without destroying you yeah. See, that that i mean that's uh, which means that even though that doesn't explain why he hasn't ended things yet in other words why hasn't he just brought it all we don't know that and that and that's the mystery mm-hmm. but we do know it's not he's not allowing suffering to continue just because he just doesn't care or he's remote or, he's or he distant, enjoys it or he enjoys it because otherwise, why in the world would he have come down to earth and suffered himself? And the book of Hebrews says, whenever you're suffering, you can go to the one God who actually knows what you've been through. So you, put, I mean, that's when I go to see somebody because I've suffered. I want to talk to somebody who's been through what I've been through. Everybody feels that way. Yeah. So in that sense, Christianity uh, makes, I think, the most sense because it says God's dealing with with suffering. He's giving you resources for right right now. He has been through it himself. That makes to me both emotional and rational sense. The karma does make rational sense, but is very unsatisfying emotionally. Whereas I think Christianity makes the most sense of suffering in, in every in every aspect.
1: Mm-hmm. At the end here, one of the arguments can be: I'll let you talk to me about God, but don't use the Bible as your source. Mm-hmm. How, how do how do we relate to the natural world as Christians? And use certainly scripture needs to be used. I would never say you can't tie my hands like that, but how do we use the world around us to also encourage people that God is who He said He is?
0: Well, if you read the Making Sense of God book, um, I um, I do bring the Bible in at the end of a chapter. Uh, the first part of the in the first part of the chapter, what you really want to do is you want to say, here's something, you say to a non-believer, here's something we both see. We both see the, the need for this, or we both agree that this is good. So you always start with something you both agree on. Then you say, but now if you believe this, don't you see there's a problem here with your own, like I, I did it a minute ago when we were talking about morality. Um, you know, I also agree. For example, that you should take care of the poor. I, you know that's great. I'm glad you're doing that. Uh, but how would you say to somebody else they ought to do it when you don't have when, when you say morality is completely uh, you know subjective, it's only something that you create inside? Uh, how will we, we ever have a program for justice if morality is something you make up? So when you start with something good, then you move to something that's a problem that uh, within their own, by the way, it's a problem on their own terms. Not on your terms, but it's a problem within their own way of living and and thinking. Then I can bring the Bible and to say here's how this is what would resolve that, and then I bring in the Bible, and I have to bring in the Bible because ultimately it's where we find out about jesus and and about everything ultimately but I think to. what, what I think I think I'm responding to your question by saying you don't critique somebody's beliefs. Uh, from some framework outside of their own framework. That's unfair. It's unfair to say, uh, you're wrong because you don't have my beliefs. That won't get very far. They'll say, okay, I know I don't have your beliefs, so we're just yelling at each other. You go inside and you say, on the base of what you do believe, which I like, why don't you believe this? So you try to critique people on the base of their own framework, their own way of thinking, and when they see and if they see it's a problem, then you could say, "Well, you know." You know, Christianity's got a resource for that, or Christianity's got an answer for that. And so that is what Christians don't seem to do. In fact, actually, neither do non-Christians. Go to the Internet. Every, nobody ever says, here's why you're wrong within your own framework, on your own terms. They always say, you're wrong because you're not like me. And that, of course, gets us nowhere.
1: We have uh, spent a couple of great days together. And this last question, I think, is the right way to end. Mm-hmm. Why should I believe
0: in Jesus? the answer answers itself if you would be willing to take a long look at him that's all I mean you might want to say why should you enjoy Vivaldi's four seasons why should you enjoy Mozart's you know Symphony 40 the answer is listen to it and um, when you find something beautiful it's an end in itself you don't say well here's all the reasons why it's beautiful you either find it beautiful or you don't In the end, if you really take a look at Jesus, you you look at his words, you look at his deeds, you ponder them, you look at him in a sense walking through the pages of the Gospels, uh, you will be compelled. Then you start to ask yourself, well, how do I know it's true? But to start with, you've got to see the beauty of Jesus, you've got to be compelled, and... uh, that'll move you toward asking the more rational questions about whether it's true.
1: And and what I love about that is the challenge for each one of us as believers, how beautiful is our Lord being expressed through us to a world that doesn't Uh, know Him?
0: Yeah. I have to say, here's the way. The Bible perfectly shows you the beauty of Jesus Christ, but the Bible also says that we're supposed to at least imperfectly show people the beauty of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tim, it's been great to have you with us. I'm so sorry to have to leave you, but uh, (laughs) it's been great to be with you, too. Thank you. Well, we hope today that uh, you've gotten some good food for thought about why you believe what you believe and how to share that with uh, those who uh, might not agree with you. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller.
2: Dr. Tim Keller is certainly one of the most respected Christian leaders today and he's once again shared in a powerful way arguments for the case of Christ. Our society at large is asking many questions regarding Christianity and the truth of the gospel and we need to be equipped to give a reply. A resource we want to recommend in that regard is volume 14 of the popular That the World May Know series. This one called The Mission of Jesus. Discover how Jesus triumphantly made God's presence known on earth and how he asks you to do the same, bringing God's shalom to the chaos of others. You'll find that on our website at safamily.co.za. Thanks for being with us today. I'm Alison Schnell for Focus on the Family Africa inviting you back next time when we'll once again help you and your family thrive in Christ.